Ryan, are you there? Hello, Michael. Hello, Internet. Hello, world. Hello, worldwide Internet. Welcome to another edition of the Buck and Sack Show. I'm Michael Sachs in San Francisco. Ryan Buckley is joining us from Portland, Oregon. Ryan, it's Tuesday night, August 13th, 2019. 2019, I should say. It's 8.50 on the West Coast. How are you? I'm excellent, Michael. It's, uh, I feel football rapidly approaching, and that feels good. I'm right there with you, and honestly, I'm guilty of what I try to avoid every August, which is peaking my excitement too early. I did a, I felt like I was on a real nice path through July, but the last week or so, I've just gotten overly hyped for the whole thing. I think the early kickoff, the Miami-Florida game on uh, August the 24th, has got me like revved up a little bit too early too soon. I need to mm-hmm. take it down a notch and chill out. I watched Hard Knocks last week. It's coming on again tonight. It's actually airing right now as we speak. I'll probably watch that tomorrow. But I- I've got to chill out a little bit when it comes to football. We're still in the dog days of August. <laughs> We are, but uh, but we but we will get there, and there will be some football talk today, but not all football talk today. No, honestly, probably not that much. Uh, we're going to start with baseball. That's going to be both of our good of the week, a little bit of a different angle, but I think it all sort of blends together, so why don't you start with your good of the week? Yeah, my good of the week is, is something that I've just kind of um, picked up on in the last couple weeks as I have said on this podcast before, as soon as the basketball season um, was over, I, I started watching a lot more baseball. And now with the uh, MLB package, it's been easy to kind of hop around and watch the games that are good and uh, that are tight or when there are marquee pitching matchups, things like that. And it, I haven't been hopping around like a lot, a lot, but I have been noticing and seeing not just in the baseball that I watch, but in the box scores every morning, This just the insane amount of production that some of these young guys who are just being called up and in some cases they've been around for a little while in other cases they're they're brand new up here but the youth is just making such a remarkable impact on the contenders the teams that are fighting to contend um, and it's been really fun to watch and I I just think about like last night specifically um, Glaber Torres hit three home runs in the doubleheader against the Orioles. He now has 13 homers against them alone yeah, this season awesome. in the 16 games he's played him. And that's half of his home run to- total. And I know that he's been around for a little bit. He'd have, he didn't just show up onto the scene this year, but um, he has kind of transformed that Yankees lineup. Uh, you look at what Pete Alonzo as a home run hitter is doing for the Mets and has been doing for them all season. Uh, he, he's close to 40 home runs if he's not there already. And, uh, and they've just been on an absolute tear. I know that they lost on, uh, on Sunday. I'm not sure what they did, or even if, if they even played yesterday. But they had won 15 out of 16 games and put themselves squarely in the wild card conversation. Yeah, and then, I, I've got an update for you on that, actually. They lost oh, Sunday. So they came into tonight, a big three-game set in Atlanta, having won 15 of their last 17. And the Braves cooled them off between a real nice outing by a young left-hander named Max Freed and Ron Acuna Jr. went yard again. Again, his thirty first like home run. Every night, he's unbelievable. He's now thirty thirty home runs and stolen bases. He's trying to become the sixth player ever to hit the forty forty club, and he also threw a dude out at the plate um, tonight. So a big win for the Braves, but no, uh, and also a big loss for the Mets. But go on, I digress. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, but it's it's basically, and then last night, uh, I wasn't really even aware of this kid until two games ago, this Aristides Aquino. Have you seen what he's doing? Yeah, the guy for the Reds. Reds. He's unbelievable. He's, he's incredible. Eight homers in his first 12 games. Um, he's got 13 hits, I think, and eight of them are home runs. And he, he's just absolutely mashing the ball. Then on top of it, you have Dante Bichette's kid, Bo, up yep. north of the border, set a major league record hitting a double in all nine of his first first nine games. He had he he's been setting extra base hit records every night because it seems like he has more extra base hits than he does games played still and he's putting the ball out of the yard. And then on the flip side You've got some nice pitching prospects that have kind of emerged, too. Um, you look at what the Dodgers have in their rotation with guys like Dustin May and uh, and Walker Bueller. And uh, I know Shane Bieber has come onto the scene for uh, the Cleveland Indians mm-hmm. this year. And there have just been uh, – it seems like there's a whole rash of names that may not have been household names, even for pretty avid baseball fans a year ago at this time and guys who are having an impact on winning teams and teams that are contending. Uh, and I'm really enjoying kind of my introduction to this whole new crop of younger guys. And it's not just new personalities, but it's new personalities who are products of kind of the new way of thinking in baseball that is more related to the home run that is more related to the spin rate. And these, these guys have kind of trained for a little bit deeper in their youth to be, these much more impactful players when they get there because they're doing all these extra things. And I, and I think you're starting to see, uh, I guess the fruits of the, the evolution of the game in this generation of young guys. And on top of it, they're awesome. Yeah. All well said, there's a lot going on here. Uh, the, some of which you touched on and some you didn't, you know, I think that this goes really hand in hand with what we saw this last offseason, where owners were hesitant more than ever to give veteran players Absolutely. long-term Absolutely. deals. I think that there's, you know, there, there's two sides of that coin, obviously. And this is, this youth movement is really sort of that other side of the coin. And the way the contracts work is these teams now control these players that are coming up for seven seasons. And, you know, they can get arbitration eligible, but they can control them basically uh, without signing them to a long-term deal for seven seasons. So it's much more cost-effective for ownership to sort of rely on these young guys than pay these veteran free agents a ton of money, which is really a change in the trend that we've seen in baseball. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be some change in the contractual situation one way or the other because these players are sort of getting raked over the coals. I mean, you mentioned yeah. we mentioned Ron Acuna. He's certainly at the forefront of this youth movement. It's his first full season. He was the rookie of the year last year, but he really didn't come up, I think, until May. And then he missed a month with injury and won the Roy Award anyway. But this is his first full season. He's really great. But, you know, the Braves signed him this offseason to a 10-year $100 million contract, which is sort of a win-win. But with these numbers he's putting up, Ryan, for the Braves to have He should another, be worth twice that much, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it's absolutely crazy, the contract that he signed. Same goes for his teammate, Ozzie Albies, who's in his mm-hmm. second full season with the Braves. He's, you know, an awesome player. He signed a seven-year, $35 million deal. So, I mean, something's got to change with these this rookie pay scale in baseball. But that's not really what I want to talk about, but I do think it is a part, a big part of the story. Uh, the other thing that I find interesting, you mentioned Bo Bichette. Uh, the, the Blue Jays have three guys that are sons of former All-Stars 
Two of them. So are I know sons. Vladdy Jr. Who's the Who's the third? Uh, Craig Biggio. Oh, Biggio. That's right. Yeah. yeah so yep. Biggio and Vlad's son, Hall of Famers. They're both lighting it up for the Blue Jays. And then you mentioned Bo Bichette, uh, who's maybe the best of the bunch. And then uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. is tearing yeah. it up for the Padres. And then uh, I think it's the Padres that have Paul Quantrill's son as well, Cal hmm. Quantrill, who was a star at Stanford. So it's amazing that all these former. Uh, all-star major league players that I really grew up with, now their sons are in baseball tearing it up at the major league level. I mean, talk about making me feel old, but really, you know, you know about I'm getting that old. Is interesting, too, is I actually looked into this the other day because I was curious. It seems like there are now, and maybe it's just because we're familiar with that older generation that we, we are identifying all these people, but it right. seems like there's more of that, more of these um, sons of fathers who who played pro ball coming up now than before, and I actually looked into the numbers. And uh, in the 1960s, it was about uh, half a percent of all major league baseball players had fathers who played in the big leagues. Uh-huh. Now it's all the way up to two percent, wow. which is a pretty pretty high clip when you That's think about it, and, and four research. times what it used to be. I, I appreciate that research by our research department. That's, <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, it's it, it's amazing. I mean, I remember growing up, you had the Alou brothers, you know, that and their father played and then later managed. Uh, in fact, he managed his son, uh, Felipe Alou managed his son Moises in, here in San Francisco. Of course, you had Ken Gri- the Ken Griffey Jr. Senior. But it, the beyond Bonses. that, the, the, Bo- the Boons, Bob and Brett Boone. Uh, who, who, who else am I missing? Uh, Barry and Bobby Bonds. Yes. Uh, the uh, and then of course the Boons. Also, you had uh, you had Aaron as well, not just Brett. But, right. Uh, Good Aaron, point. Aaron and Bob. Then let's see. I, I, there there are uh, Delino DeShields is a guy. <laughs> his kids his kids his bumping kids around is, somewhere is on for somebody. The Rangers. Yep. 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 Yeah, so, I mean, it's just exciting, and there are oh, a and, lot uh, of Pudge young Rodriguez, players. Pudge Rodriguez's kid pitches for the Giants. Yes, good point. He, he absolutely does. Derek, he, he was up, mm-hmm. then he was down. I think he's up again. I'm not really sure, uh, but it, it doesn't matter. But, yeah, I mean, it. The, but this youth movement, it does seem to be, to your point, there are some nice young pitchers. It seems like there's more good position players than there are pitchers, at least right now. Uh, but it, it's mm-hmm. good for the sport. But I also think it's sort of bad for player contracts, you know, the more these good young players, because I think unless we have a new CBA, which we're going to have to have after next season, you know, the, the owners are just sort of holding the players hostage in, in some ways. And, and, I, and I think we, we need to see a change there. But it's exciting. It really is exciting to see so many good young players uh, up at the major league level just tearing it up. And, you know, as a Braves fan – Seeing Acuna and Albies and what they're doing is—it's just—it's freaking awesome. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah. And then on the pitching side, Mike Soroka and Max Fried are two guys in both their first full season uh, in the major leagues, and and they're their two best pitchers. So uh, I'm enjoying that as well. So that sort of brings me into my good of the week, and my good of the week is just simply the major league baseball playoff race you know the last time we talked two weeks ago we were the night before the trade deadline I predicted a wild trade deadline that's not really what we got Uh, we saw one mega trade where the Diamondbacks sent Zach Grinke to Houston which in my opinion really made the Astros a a pretty big favorite to win the World Series I mean with their pitching rotation at least a favorite to the AL for sure I do think the Dodgers could compete with them but definitely the AL although the Yankees I'm not I'm not ready to write them off yet Yet I do think the Astros have way better pitching. They they do, 
I mean, and I'm not ready to write off anybody, to be honest. Sure. I'm just saying uh, the Astros are clearly the favorites right now to come out of the AL and to win and to win the World Series. But, you know, baseball playoffs are tough. Anything can happen. It's very unpredictable. But the Astros made the big move. The Braves went out and really went out and got three guys to strengthen their bullpen. Those three guys have been really shaky since coming to Atlanta, but they're, Melanson got a 1-2-3 save tonight, which was really a breath of fresh air. So, you know, that's good. But, you know, most of the other contenders didn't do a whole lot. The Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers did nothing or very little. Uh, the Indians made a big move, sending Bauer away. We discussed that last time on the show. The Twins made some cosmetic moves to their bullpen, but their pitching staff is really struggling. Uh, but, you know... Uh, the, the Cubs, Cardinals, Brewers, those three teams, Vine in the Central, didn't do a whole lot. So we didn't see the flurry of moves that we sort of expected. But now here we are, mid-August. We've got a six-week sprint to the finish, Ryan. And I just think it's going to be a great, great pennant race. I mean, I think you've got a, a legitimate race for the division in every division except the two Western ones. It seems like both the AL and NL West are pretty much decided but I think the Central and East are up for grabs. I mean, the Yankees have a nice little lead there in the, in the AL East. I actually want to check and see exactly how big that lead is. The Red Sox got a nice win. But the Red Sox, you know, the Red Sox and the Rays just don't have the horses. It doesn't seem to keep pace with the – the Yankees have a hell of a lineup, man. And they just keep – you know, Judge and Stanton have missed most of the year. But they found young guys, to your point – to replace them, you mentioned Glaber Torres. Didi Gregorius is a monster. They've got this third baseman Gio now. Gio Urshela. Yeah, is that his name? Mm -hmm. He's really good. Uh, yeah, and, I, think, I think it's Gio Urshela, yeah. Yeah, he's hit like 18 home runs in half a season. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the, yeah, the Yankees have a nine-and-a-half game lead on the Rays right now. The Red Sox are way back at 17-and-a-half games out. So, uh, But and every I, other I, division has a pretty solid too. race going. Uh, and I think it's going to be exciting all the way to the end. The other thing I've been looking at as far as kind of just the way the dominance is concerned is some of the run differential for these teams. It's yep. just, just absurd, especially look at the Dodgers. They're plus 208 on the run differential. Yep. They're just mashing teams. The, Yan the Yankees plus 165, but they're not even uh, up there with the Astros who are plus 188. And so, and then you, you look at the other side and the, the poor Orioles, they don't even have the worst record. The Tigers do, but the Orioles are negative 241 in the run, in the run differential yeah, column. Yeah, Detroit's negative 233. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a big disparity in the National League. The Dodgers, uh, you said 208. I'm seeing 206 right now. I don't know if this is. A yeah, it may, it may have gone down today. I but mean, I'm whatever. But I'm just yeah. going to say two. They're plus 206. The Braves are the actually not the second best team. The Cubs are now the second best team at plus 75. And would you believe the Diamondbacks have the third best run differential in the league? And they're 19 games behind the Dodgers. They're only a game over 500. That's the amazing thing to me is just a game over. Yeah. So the Braves have the fourth best run differential, but the second best record at 71 and 50. But the point is there's a big gap uh, between mm -hmm. the Dodgers and everybody else. The, Do the, you know, the Dodgers got Ryu back after missing about two weeks on the DL with a neck injury. He was lights out on Sunday. I mean, their pitching rotation with him and Kershaw and Bueller and Maeda – 
is really good, and it's really the only rotation I think that can compare to the. Strohs. And then you've seen, have you seen this kid May pitch the the redhead with the fro? I haven't. He, I picked him up on be my pretty, fantasy team, but I haven't seen him. What's he like? He he's he's got. I mean, I mostly like watching his moppy hair flop around, but I've he's also turned in some pretty good performances too. Yeah, I mean, he was their top prospect, so I'm sure exactly. And I think we're seeing. That's the other thing is we've heard about some of these prospect systems, and San Diego's another one. At least the Dodgers have, have won the National League pennant a couple of times. San Diego hasn't done much, but not just – They you haven't got, done you anything, like, actually. You, no, I know. You, but you've <laughs> yeah. got a guy like Tatis, and you've got a guy like uh, – what's his name? Paddock, the, the pitcher who's Paddock been lights out for them. Paddock and Casey are both pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But they can't yeah. win games, Ryan. I mean, they're no. – they, no. to me, they're one of the most disappointing teams in baseball. They're 55 and 63. Uh, they're 23 and a half games out, and they just can't put it together. They've got all these pieces that, you know, they spent a ton of money on Hosmer and Machado, but they're not winning games. And, uh, you know, I know that they're disappointed. They haven't had, you know, since they lost on the last day of the season in 2010, they haven't had a winning record since then, and they're, they're not going to have a winning record this year either. It doesn't look – so they're, they're very disappointing for sure. Um but, you know, but I want to touch on the American League for a second, if I can, because we mentioned the Yankees, but they have a 164 run differential, but the Rays are 105, the Red Sox are plus 60, the Twins are plus 127, the Indians are plus 86, the Strohs are plus 185, and the A's are plus 88. So there you have seven teams that have a better than plus 60 run differential. And those are the only teams in the league with a positive run differential. So those seven teams are head and shoulders above everybody else in the American League. So the schedule's really going to play a factor here. Who you play down the stretch. If you can just feast on these crap teams like the Blue Jays and the Orioles and the White mm-hmm. Sox, Royals, Tigers, Rangers, Angels, and Mariners, those teams are done. And, they're, and they've basically quit they have nothing to play for so if you can get a bunch of games against those teams and go on a run it's going to be a big boost so I think this whole thing particularly the wild card is far from over in the American League it's going to be really exciting to see who those two teams are that get the wild card because you're going to have basically the Rays Red Sox and the A's along with whoever misses out in the AL Central fighting for those two wildcard spots. So it's going to be great, and it's a six-week sprint. And, I, I mean, I couldn't be – honestly, I don't understand, Ryan. You know, people – baseball attendance is down. TV ratings are down. We've talked ad, ad nauseum about the rule changes and how they don't market the sport. But I think the sport's as exciting as ever. I mean, I understand home runs are up, strikeouts are up. They're not putting the ball in play. When I'm sitting there and watching a game, that I don't notice that. Or if I go to a game, that doesn't really cross my mind – in the least. I love the sport. I follow it every day. I follow it every night. For people who aren't watching baseball, or at least following it every day, like, what are you doing all summer if you're a sports fan? Honestly, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I don't know what people You have to be taking a break do. from sports or that, or you're, you're breaking down the NBA schedule release or analyzing the third string depth chart at your team's mini camp. I don't know. I don't know. It it, it it honestly mystifies me. And, like, I understand how someone could say baseball's boring, but I, I don't think so. I think it's awesome. You know, again, I, I follow it very closely. I watch a ton of games. I listen to a ton of games on, on, the, on the MLB app. Uh, I just think it's great. I think that there's a ton of good young players, like you said, uh, and it's exciting. And I'm in. I'm in through Halloween, baby. Bring it. <laughs> 
So, you know, go baseball. That's, yeah. That's my good of the week. Uh, what's your bad? Uh, my bad of the week is just the entire Antonio Brown situation. Yep. And there is so much to unpack. I don't even know how much of it is worth going into because I think almost all of it, if not all of it, is plain and simple diva behavior on on his behalf. I, think I agree. That, uh, I think that he... Obviously, there were a lot of waves with the way he left Pittsburgh. And I think people were wondering, when he goes somewhere else, is it going to be different? And I think what we learned is no, it's not going to be different. Uh, I think he he achieved a level of fame and success um, that has, for whatever reason, turned him into an almost impossible player for teams to deal with. And that can be teammates, coaches, front offices, whatever, but the man who shows up to training camp in a hot air balloon then mysteriously can't play, and we don't know why until he Instagrams a photo of his feet that looks like he's been on a burn unit because he didn't take proper precautions when he went into cryotherapy and literally got frostbite on his feet. Then he is... Yeah, in in France, of all places. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, Then... He apparently goes radio silent on the team to the point people aren't even sure of his whereabouts. Then once they are sure of his whereabouts, now there's this other report that comes out that basically not even a report. He says himself that he's not prepared. He'll sit out the whole season if he can't wear the helmet that he's always worn, which has now been ruled um, essentially outdated and and has been disallowed by the NFL. For safety reasons. For safety reasons. And this is not a helmet that other people didn't also wear. Tom Brady wore it. He didn't like the change. But the other thing is they've been knowing this has been coming for a year and could have been trying out other solutions, getting something custom made, what have you. Chose not to and essentially seemed like he was just looking for another excuse to rock the boat. And that's exactly what happened. Then he showed this just a day after he loses his grievance. He shows up to practice. Everything's hunky-dory. But I, I heard an interesting quote on the radio this morning, and it was one from uh, Jerome Bettis that got cleaned up a little bit to make it PG. But it, the way he said it was, if it smells like shit everywhere you go, there's just a chance it might be you. Yeah. And, 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 and Antonio Brown, it's it, by the end of his time in Pittsburgh, it was starting to smell like shit. And now he, he's only been in Oakland a couple weeks and it's already starting to smell like shit. And I don't think it's the organizations he was playing for. I don't think it's the teammates he was playing for, the coaches, the front offices. I think this guy's got issues being part of a team now. And I don't know why that is exactly. He, he has plenty of incentive monetarily to, to do well. Uh, he's obviously an incredible competitor when he gets out and just does it and puts all this other stuff aside. But it's almost like there's been too much offseason for Antonio Brown. Yeah, there's too much of Antonio Brown loving Antonio Brown. And, you know, for lack of a better word, I think the word crazy gets thrown around too much. And I especially think <laughs> in, this, in this time in which we live where, and we're going to talk about this more on my bad of the week, but, you know, where mental illness for the first time in our society's history is being treated uh, kind of, in the, at least in the public domain, in a very serious way where it wasn't before. And so I'm hesitant to say a guy's crazy because he honestly, and I'm not saying this in, in any sort of sort of derisive manner, he may have some mental issues that we're not aware of because he acts in a, in a manner that is sort of 
manic, and uh, you don't know what the hell's going on with his him. behavior is erratic. His behavior is erratic, and it has been over a, a number of years now, and we don't even know the half of it. I mean, I'm can sure you imagine not. what goes on on just sort of a daily basis in the locker room with this guy and, and some others around the league? I mean, talk about being a tough guy to manage. I mean, he's got, you know, he's he's at, he's threatening to retire if the if the league doesn't allow him to wear this helmet that they've already deemed unsafe. You know, they're the the league is, you know, talk about changing the the sort of public discourse. You know, this is a league that has ignored glaring concussion problems for six seven decades now and done everything that they can to sweep it under the rug, and now they're finally sort of putting a helmet in place to protect their players at least in part a little bit more, and he doesn't want to go along with that because he's not comfortable with it, and he goes so far as to sort of take his old helmet from Pittsburgh and paint it Raider colors, as a report has it. Like, I'm dying to see a picture of that helmet that he painted Raider colors. That was and do we think he painted it? Did he take it to an auto body shop? Where, like, that's the detailing all a place? little bit unclear because he hasn't <laughs> talked yet still, although I've actually, I think he did talk today. I, I haven't seen that. I just saw the quotes from his agent, Drew Rosenhaus. And, you know, when Drew Rosenhaus speaks, I treat it the same as sort of uh, our current president's press secretary speaking. I basically don't believe a single word that I hear. So, you know, so I, I, don't, I don't really know what's going on there. But, I mean, this guy, what the hell is going on? Like, can't you just show up to camp? And then we have the added sort of storyline of him being on Hard Knocks. And so did you watch the first episode last week? I did. Okay. So I was confused because he, we, we have these reports that he's got this frostbite on his, and, and, and you mentioned it, that he actually ends up showing a picture, and I guess it's his right toe. His big toe looks clearly like it, it, it's messed up and somehow. I mean, it looks pretty, pretty grotesque, to be honest. So why and how is he out there, like, running routes? And then you've got, like, Gruden talking about, you know, he's not 100%, and Gruden at one point even, like, gets in his ear and tells him to sort of dial it down. So I didn't really understand all of that. Like, was he practicing? How much was he practicing? So here's the thing. I think at that point, when they were shooting that, his... Snap or his uh, Instagram story had not yet been revealed, so I think he had the foot issues, but it really wasn't public, and people didn't know why. And he was just and trying so be- to play through it. So because I think because there wasn't some a specified injury that people were really aware of at that point in time, he was just saying, "Yeah, I've got these issues. I just need a little bit of time." But then he also like I, I didn't get the whole "I can only go one speed" thing, and like, why? Yeah, yeah I, I, that didn't totally make sense to me. Either. There were a lot of things there that didn't make sense because if he he has this injury, you know, he's in the locker room, so somebody's going to see that foot. You would imagine, and doesn't he like get tape on his ankle? So you would imagine the trainer's going to see it. Like he can't just conceal the injury. So I, I just didn't understand that, and then like. You know, the Raiders knew he had some sort of injury because they were telling him to dial it back. So, but why was Gruden even allowing him to be out there at all in the first place? Like that, that whole thing didn't really make sense to me. I'm, I'm looking forward nope. to seeing the one this week and hopefully we, we sort of get some clarification. I'm not really sure if we're going to. I mean, the, the whole thing, you know, and then I started to think maybe he's just kind of pulling some shenanigans to avoid having to practice more. And, you know, a lot of veterans will kind of, you know, 
a lot of these holdouts are basically just an excuse to not show up to camp. So I thought that maybe, you know, as a veteran player, he just wanted to buy himself a little more time so he didn't have to go through the drudgery of camp quite as much. But now it looks like that isn't really even the case. So I don't know. But it, the whole thing is fascinating and, 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 and crazy and weird. Uh, and, you know, it, it's just... Just get out there and play. I mean, this team, the Raiders traded, all, you know, you, you wanted out of Pittsburgh. This team came and got you out of Pittsburgh. They gave a hell of a lot up for you. Yeah. Why don't you just show up and play? I mean, they gave you a new deal. Well, I mean, how about, how about just being professional enough to show up ready to play? Like, I, I mean, I know that maybe the cryotherapy was intended to be good for him. But you, you can't be messing that up. You need a specialist who knows what they're doing to help you through something like that. Yeah. You're getting paid too much to be the franchise guy, to show up and have this ambiguous injury that then you put out on social media. And then you create another issue that you could have been solving for the last year with this helmet that you chose not to and basically make as it almost seems like a red herring issue to the foot thing. I mean, th there's just there's too much. Totally agree. And, and it's it's. It's a case, what you just articulated is a yet another case of where the real problem is the cover-up of the problem, right? It's not so much yeah. like people would, uh, would sort of understand it to some degree if you were transparent and said, I was in Paris, so I went to this cryotherapy, I was, you know, working out and trying to keep up and be in shape for camp, you know, I had a, mis a mistake happened, and I, you know, whatever happened, happened, just a mistake happened. Yeah, just get out in front of it. And get out in front of it, but don't be, as you said, ambiguous and sort of try to hide it, that makes it seem worse and, and you lose all credibility going forward. And, and no one know, had to know about it at all because he didn't have to go on Instagram. It, it could be between him and the team. And no they one could be, just say he has a foot injury and, and, and treat yes. it like that. I mean, any yeah. of these things would be better than doing what he ultimately has decided to do. And we're at a point where you and I and the rest of the sporting public doesn't know what's going on. And we basically don't trust anything that he says at all. So, you know, nope. That, nope. that's where we're at. And on top of that, you, you, you've got Gruden and the Raiders and Mark Davis, you know, who nobody really trusts to begin with anyway. I mean, they're, they're a, a clown show to the highest degree all the time. So, you know, that, that all just, you know, if this was the Patriots, it would be a different saga. But the fact that it's the Raiders makes it sort of more of a circus than it would have been. So, you know, it, it's just... It just feeds into the whole thing. It's just weird and, and par for the course when you're talking about the two principals, which is Antonio Brown and your Oakland Raiders. So that, that's yep. just how it is. Yep. Okay. And then and I, it, it puts, yeah, we don't, we don't need to go any further, but it just, it puts everyone else who's done the work to get him there in a really shitty spot too. It puts Gruden in a bad spot. It, it, it puts everybody who worked to try to make a splash getting him look bad. It makes them all look bad. Without a doubt. But they kind of got what they deserved there because yeah, they, they, they kind of they, they were playing with fire. That they when knew they, they were got Antonio fire. Brown, that yes, you're, that's the right word. They, they were playing with fire. And now they're getting burned to some degree uh, by a cryotherapy chamber. So uh, there, there we have it. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to shift gears completely for my bad of the week. This is honestly a topic I've been wanting to discuss for a while. Um, I, I want to preface my remarks by saying I'm not an expert on the topic of, of gun control and gun safety, but that's sort of only in part what I'm going to talk about. And I want, I'm not 
I'm going to try to be political. I'm going to try to be as factual as I can and just bring up some observations, Ryan, because this whole, you know, mass shooting thing in America reared its ugly head once again last Sunday where we had a, a, a terrible shooting um, at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, and then just later that same day we had another shooting where I think nine people died in Dayton, Ohio. And this is, you know... You, one of the problems with this whole thing is, is you know, I was doing some research tonight in, in advance of talking about this topic, and it's honestly one of the biggest problems out there with this whole thing, I think, is just the, the state of the media in our country and the, and the sort of uh, distrust in certain media outlets, and it's gotten to a point for me, honestly, where I don't even know who to trust anymore on any sort of highly controversial or highly politicized topic. I mean, just trying to find some numbers and comparing, you know, mass shooting deaths this year compared to last year or, you know, year by year over the last 50 years or comparing even the same numbers in America to other countries to, in the world and sort of just trying to make a, a, an actual factual uh, scientific sort of argument. It's hard to find the numbers, Ryan. It really is. And it's hard to know uh, what sort, you know, just looking it up on the internet, it's hard to figure out who to trust, what's real, what's not, who's, you know, mm -hmm. sort of funded or whatever by one side or the other. And I guess that's really what my bad of the week is, is we have a pretty clear problem in this country, I think, with the Second Amendment and, and the right to bear arms and what that has sort of turned into here over the last 25, 30 years. I think that most reasonable people can agree that we have a problem. And, and how, how big of a problem or how much of a problem, I guess, can be debated. And I want to get your thoughts on that. But we have a problem because the, the number of these incidents, the frequency of these incidents, the, the, all the various different places that they're occurring, it, it's undoubtable. You know, you can't really debate that there's more than there ever has been. It seems like there's more all the time. And you look at the statistics and that sort of does bear itself out. You know, there, there were very few of these sort of incidences really before the 1970s. And there's a lot more, you know, I'd say from probably 2008 on, which was around the time of, of Columbine. And then, of course, Sandy Hook was a huge one at the school there, the elementary school in 2012. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess, again, I, I'm, my bad of the week is I, I just hate how politicized this whole thing is. And I hate how... There needs to be a side, and, and I, and I just hate how it seems like nobody wants to really talk about it. Nobody wants to sort of have intelligent conversations about what, if anything, we can or should do about it. It's almost become just this it's such a fiery topic that the people on both sides, these groups on both sides, you know, they they just both sides sort of turn me off on the whole thing. And I wish we could come to some sort of middle ground on this and other really important issues, but it seems like we're just at a place in our country where we can't really even have any debate, and I, I feel like the majority of Americans are somewhere in the middle on both sides, but that voice, that argument, almost never gets, you never really hear it. Whether you, you read an article, or you turn on the news, or you log online, it, the, the real sort of debate, the real information that you see is just sort of the polls, the, the both sides, whether it's conservative or liberal and everything in between. And I think that's the problem, is this divide that we have. And it seems like the middle ground has just sort of 
taken a back seat on every major issue, and we can't even discuss these things anymore. That's my bad of the week. I'm just, you know, I know I'm not alone in saying this. I'm tired of it. Like, we need to do something to, like, crawl back into some sort of middle, some sort of middle ground where, where common sense and logic and truth and facts rule the day. And it just seems like we've gotten away from all of that on all the major important issues and it just seems like things are just getting worse because we can't even come to come to the table and talk it out um, as as sensible, reasonable adult Americans. And that's that's my bad of the week. Yeah, I mean, I I actually am am really tightly aligned with you on on just about all of this, and um, and I've actually long said, and I, I don't know if I've actually if I've shared this stance with you, but it's it's really similar to what you just described. And part of the reason that I can't get into politics in general, like don't want to watch the news, don't want to watch the debates, don't want to watch. It's not that I don't care about what happens to our country. It's not that I don't care about who's in office. But what bothers me is that the two sides are so obsessed with winning that that becomes paramount to just doing the right thing and 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 having and and, and having a clear and reasonable vision on on certain things. And so what I think you articulated which everyone desires is everything to be a little bit more reasonable and moderate and logical and and, fi- and find that middle ground. But the problem is the people who are pulling the strings behind it they want to back the person who's furthest from the middle ground and closest to their, um, I, I don't want to say extreme side, but they, but the Republican Party wants the person who's the most conservative. And the, and the Democratic Party wants, seems to want the person who's the most liberal. And that seems to piss off either side so much that nothing ever gets done in the middle because they're so busy trying to beat each other. And that's, that's the part that really discourages me because I think that both sides can probably agree what's happening right now is really bad and something needs to be done about it. But there's there's too much of a pissing contest but over the political lines for, for anyone to even come to the table. And it's super discouraging because I don't think we, we've seen the upward trend of specifically this gun violence and uh, senseless acts of gun violence that result in the loss of innocent lives. And it just, it doesn't need to be this way. And it, and I think there are things that can be done. I don't know what those things are. There are, and I'm not, I have some ideas, but I'm, we're not getting into political discussion about the, the, the policies that can be made. I just think that people can agree things could probably be done, but we need to be able to come together to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, we, we, we totally agree. And, and, you know, I went to Outside Lands on Sunday. For those that don't know, it's a huge music festival in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. It's the 12th year. I've gone every year except last year, 11 out of the 12 years. And the big thing that struck me this year is just the incredible additional security. And I'm actually friends with some of the guys that put on this festival, and I was at a cookout with them. Uh, last weekend, the weekend before Outside Lands, and we were talking about some of this stuff, and they were talking about you know the, all the additional security measures that they had to take in the wake of the Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting, which happened you know pretty near here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And then on Sunday when I went, it you know it, it hit me in the face honestly. Before you even get to the festival, I mean when you get 
even the remotely close now, they've got the whole area fenced off. They're, they're fencing off way more of a perimeter than they ever used to do in the past. Uh, they've extended the fences up higher. Now, sure, some of that is probably so people don't sneak in. But, you know, I know for a fact, because I talked to the guys that run the festival, that it's all additional security measures. So, you know, mm -hmm. the other thing they did, and this was my first really event attending where the the clear backpack was a requirement you couldn't bring in a backpack that wasn't clear this is the, that was a first for me i mean my wife had to order a special clear backpack you know so we could bring like sweatshirts in um and you know everyone's walking around with these clear backpacks and it's just so weird i mean you know it's just just so strange that that's where we're at and it's like i guess people are now you know, so far along, it's new for me, but no one really seemed to care. It's sort of almost accepted now that you're going to do this. But I just don't think that's good. I mean, you've got to walk through metal detectors now to get into every event. You go to any Major League Baseball, football, basketball game, you got to walk through a metal detector to get in. I mean, it's commonplace now, but I certainly remember a time not that long ago where that wasn't the case. And, you know, all of these security measures are a, a true double-edged sword. You know, you're happy they're there. You certainly don't want a, a tragedy to happen at any event, certainly not at an event that you're at. But, you know, it's just, it, I feel like we, we, we get used to all of these things way too quickly, and we never really sort of talk about the where and the why and the how. And I just think it's, it, again, it's all bad. It all seems to be going sort of in the wrong direction. Um, you know, but having said all this, I, you know, I, I want to point this out. I, I just want to sort of change the conversation a little bit. You know, I don't know if you saw it, but the, the physicist Neil deGrasse Tom, uh, what's his name? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. Yeah. Did you see that tweet that he put out in the wake of the Sunday shootings that he caught a lot of, a lot of flack for? Did you see that? Uh, I heard about it. I didn't see it verbatim, but I heard that he had one that, that people weren't a fan of. People were not a fan of it, but I actually thought he kind of brought up a good point. You know, it, people were saying he was insensitive to the victims and whatnot, and, and I don't think that was really his intent at all. He, he tweeted that in the past 48 hours, the U.S., you know, horrifically lost... 34 people, but he said also on average in that last 48 hours, we lost, you know, way more people to medical errors, to the flu, to suicide, to car accidents, and to homicide via handgun, and, and not, you know, the semi-automatic, the AR-15 that seems to be the gun of choice in all these mass shootings, which is basically a cheap version of the military AK-47. Um, did a little research, but... Um, you know, I think that he has a good point here because, you know, do, have we gone too far with this with these mass shootings? Like, does the media cover events like that because, you know, it's a shock and awe and, and people want to watch because they're horrified by it? But, you know, you don't get too much coverage of medical error deaths or, you know, heart disease deaths or cancer deaths or, or whatever it is. Like, are, are we focusing too much on this? Is the problem overblown. I mean, I think that that is a reasonable conversation to be had, but that's a conversation that can never really be had, it seems, in our society anymore, because to your point, everyone's just fighting on, on sort of the, the polar opposites, and everyone wants to, you know, spout facts that may or may not be true, and, and again, the, you know, it just seems like the truth doesn't really matter anymore, and, and I thought that Neil actually brought up a pretty good point there, that should at some point 
be part of a, 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 an intelligent conversation, really. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I guess the thing that makes it different for me and all the of all the other things that he listed, medical errors and things like that, those, those were all things that I think are happening anyways. And could they be hap- Could they happen? Could they be better? Yeah, sure. But like, it, I guess it's the, it's, it's the, it's the thought of somebody who has mental health issues, having access to an assault rifle that feels like that doesn't necessarily have to, that, that seems like a much less of a natural occurrence than some of these accidents that might happen in the ad, a, a medical field or what have you. Yeah, and, and then, you know, and we, we can get off of this in a second, but he brings up the flu. Uh, 300 people died from the flu in 48 hours. But, you know, at some point in our... In our people are responsible for their own health. Well, but they, they created flu shots, right? Right. So doctors, there, there was a problem. Lots of people were dying from the flu. So doctors went to work and, and figured out a flu shot, and they change it every year So you know to try to help the most amount of people. And then if you don't go get the flu shot... That's your problem, you know? So I think that, so I guess that's really what I want here. Again, there is a problem. How big of a problem we can debate, what the reasons are we can debate, but it just doesn't seem like anybody wants to actually try to solve the problem in any sort of meaningful way. That that people just want to sort of cling to this this law, uh, the Second Amendment, that was passed in... Uh, 1791, okay? It was passed in December of 1791, okay? This is 2019, and I guess this is really, again, not to get political, but this is the big problem that I have with it, Ryan, is that so many things in our society, people, you know, want to cling to old old rules, old norms. I mean, it, it's akin to not in any way to compare, like, mass shootings to college football or paying players but the NCAA wants to you know to bring it back to sports here the NCAA wants to continue to not pay these players based on rules that they they created 50 60 years ago but things have changed right and and there's way more population than there ever has been and I don't want to get into all of it but things are way different now than they were in 1791 in 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 almost every facet of life so I just think at some point you need to look at, at these rules and when they were created why they were created, and are things still the same now, or do we need to sort of adjust them? And I think that the Second Amendment is sort of the maybe the first place that I would look at in, in terms of updating a rule. And again, I'm not saying that I think that we need to eliminate guns in this country. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that there is a problem, and it should be addressed. And the fact that it, there's, it doesn't seem to want to be addressed by at least half of all Americans really sort of bothers me. And, and that, that, that's really it for me. I'm with you. I am with you. All right. That's my bad of the week. Thanks, everybody, for bearing with us on that. Um, what's your interesting, Ryan? Uh, my interesting, we mentioned Hard Knocks uh, and, and, it, and how they covered Antonio Brown. I saw an interesting, at least what I thought was an interesting development this morning, and that was a, a publication that covers Arizona State University Devil's Digest had a report that Hard Knocks is going to be executing a Hard Knocks series towards the end of the college football season yeah. that will that will feature four teams, including two Pac-12 teams, uh, your Alabama Crimson Tide, and uh, the Penn State Nittany Lions. Yeah. And as, a, as someone who is just a huge fan of that production and just the way that it's done, um, I actually had the, inter- the opportunity 
um, a couple weeks ago to talk to an old colleague of both of ours, Scott Bear, about uh, he he had sat down with the showrunner for Hard Knocks and was just talking to him about what all goes into it and how right. they execute it. And it is amazing when you hear about the details that like they're they've got like 350 hours of footage a week that they're trying to go through um, to put into one out one one hour show. Wow. And uh, mostly it's like watching fly on the wall type stuff and not trying to make anything happen, but just observing. And like, it just, it sounds like this Herculean thing, but I, I have so much appreciation for the way that product is put together. And the idea of being able to watch a similar product about college football and some really compelling characters in college football while the season is in full swing towards the end of the season. Now, I don't know when they're going to do it exactly, if it's going to be before a bowl game or um, if it's actually going to be in like, you know, the last few weeks of the season in November or how it's going to be executed. Um, but I couldn't be more excited to see uh, a lot of uh, like basically not unedited because it will be edited, but uh, I guess um, uncensored Mike Leach type stuff, uh, yeah. Herm Edwards, Nick Saban, James Franklin, and then really what those programs look like in comparison to each other, how differently different teams do things. It seems like the NFL, there's kind of just a way that it gets done in a lot of places. And then every year in Hard Knocks, you see different quirks that each organization has. But for the most part, the structure of it all always seems pretty similar with subbing in and out different personalities. I'm interested to see how these contrast and compare both to the pro game and also to each other, being that we're going to chance, get the chance to see four schools at once. And I'm really excited about the four schools they chose. Yeah, great interesting, because I'm very interested in it as well. It seems like this is still all in the works, that none of the four yes, schools... Yes, I, I don't... No, go ahead. Right. Yeah, no, I, no, no, I was just going to say, it, it's, at this point, it's only a report. We haven't seen uh, anything official as, as far as a press release or confirmation from the schools that this is going on. But, uh, but more than one source had, had something about this in the works. Yeah, true. And, and it's, it's, it's unclear as to if, you know, all four are going to be on every episode or if there's going to be an episode for each four or how that's mm -hmm. going to work. So I'm interested in finding out the details of that. I think you bring up a really good point. I, it will be interesting to sort of compare, say, Alabama and Penn State to the two Pac-12 schools who are much sort of lesser, less big programs, programs with less uh, less money and, and less fanfare, really. So that, that will be an interesting comparison to make. You know, obviously when I saw that Alabama might be involved, my interest was peaked extremely high you know i've said for years as as i've said on this podcast many times we we both love hard knocks i mean i just absolutely love it it gets me through the august sort of anticipation period for football really really nicely and you know i've always said if i could get a full season of alabama doing that you know how much would i pay and i'm not really sure but it would be a pretty big number i think so now to maybe have that actually be true is pretty exciting because i've kind of dreamt about this for for a whole bunch of years really <laughs> since, since hard knocks came onto the scene so uh, i think it's going to be awesome obviously we love college football as much as anybody so i'm with you any sort of sort of as you say unscripted behind the scenes type show dealing with college football Sign me up. I'm in. I, I can't get enough of that stuff. I, I'm really looking forward to the possibilities. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I am too. I will. I'm sure more details will emerge, but uh, between the personalities and the differences in the programs, I'm fired up for it. I'd, I'd be fired up for any 
sort of a production of that variety, but I, I think the specifics that we've heard about so far are at the very least quite intriguing. What's your uh, interesting of the week? Yeah, my interesting of the week uh, was going to be Antonio Brown, but when you wanted to talk about it, you know, I, I kind of went back a couple weeks because it's been two weeks since uh, we talked, and I had the privilege, uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend prior. Uh, my family and I went up to the Russian River area in Sonoma. Uh, we went mm-hmm. to the actual Russian River for the day and, and hung out for a little bit. But then after that, we stopped by the Russian River Brewery that makes the famous uh, double IPA beer, Pliny the Elder. I think we've talked about our, our affinity for the Russian River Brewery mm-hmm. and, and yeah. Pliny the Elder before. Uh, d- but did you know that they have a new, a new spot in Windsor? Now that they've like they started brewing, they they built this huge new facility in Windsor, and so they're now like brewing way more beer than they ever did. Do you know about this? I was not aware of that. No. Yeah, so it's pretty exciting uh, for for really all craft beer lovers because you know it's always been really hard to find Pliny the Elder. They they brew other beers. Their their regular IPA. Blind Pig is really good. I mean, they have a full complement of all the different beers that you would expect. But Pliny the Elder and then Pliny the Younger, their triple IPA that only comes out in February is almost impossible to get. But Pliny the Elder is not carried many places outside of California. Even here in the Bay Area, it's kind of hard to find. So, you know, I was at their new spot in, excuse me, up in Sonoma in this town called Windsor. I brought home a 12-pack of Pliny the Elder, and really that's the best part of going is you can walk out of there with a 12-pack. I mean, you can't you, – even if you find like a Whole Foods that has them, they only sell them in singles, and a lot of places limit the number that you can buy. I mean, I've seen like two or four bottle limits, so it's awesome to be able to roll back home you know, with a full 12-pack of this great beer. But That I is guess, killer. I guess all of this leads me into my interesting of the week. I just think the whole craft beer uh, scene is extremely interesting. You know, it sort of exploded seven or eight years ago. It's now a very saturated market. And what you've seen is is sort of the OGs. A lot of the original craft brewers that, that burst onto the scene have now, a lot of them have been bought up by whether it's InBev, which is basically what Budweiser became. It's a global conglomerate, a huge corporation. They went out and bought brands like uh, Lagunitas IPA, and uh, they bought a few others. I think they bought Fat Tire out of uh, Colorado, and then Constellation, which is basically Corona. Uh, They bought Sculpin out of San Diego. Ballast Point is really what they bought. They bought that one for a billion dollars. And I just think the scene, the whole scene is really interesting. It's now like wherever you go, you know, even I go home to Virginia or I go to a football game in Tuscaloosa, wherever I go now, uh, there's, there's craft brewers. And I think that what I'm into now, and I think that most people who really like the sort of craft beer are into the, the ones that are still independent, like the Russian River Brewery, who I'm sure that the big boys have come to Russian River Brewery numerous oh, yeah. times and have thrown 
ungodly amounts of money at them, but they've stayed independent, and I really uh, appreciate and respect that a lot. You know, I appreciate the, the ability to, to walk down the street from where I live and go to this place called Social Brewery. They still don't even can or bottle any of their beers. The only way to get their beer is to go in to their brew pub. You know, I love that. I think that that's just a great part of America, you know, that sort of the you don't see this much, you know, everything's so corporate uh, driven, everything's, you know, uh, a monopoly now in almost any industry, but I love, you know, we sort of missed out on the days, or we certainly miss out now on the days of sort of the mom and pop shop, and, and, and the, the, these breweries are sort of one of the leading examples now of sort of uh, the, the little man taking the power back to be able to figure out how to brew your own beer and make it good and you know you, you rent a little spot and and you start selling it and see if people like it and then all of a sudden you know you can sell to Budweiser for a billion dollars in the case of Sculpin and Ballast Point you know I remember living in San Diego when Ballast Point had just hit the scene uh, they actually Sculpin wasn't even their first beer it was one called Yellowtail which was a pale ale I was living in San Diego when they first started and just sort of to see that maturation and and then, you know, I'm happy for the people that sell out and, and get a billion dollars. I mean, how can you not be happy for a story like that? But at the same time, as somebody who does like to go out and find and try new beers and find and try new breweries or whatever, I really appreciate these breweries that stay independent, that sort of stay small and, and are, are able to sort of make a nice living without becoming, you know, a sellout to these big corporations. I, I just find the whole thing to be really interesting and really fun. And it's, it's, a, it's a fun part of going to different places now is trying this or that local beer. Obviously, uh, you and I both live in two of the hottest spots in the country, if not the world, mm -hmm. for craft beer. But I just think it's cool how it's spread all over the country now. No matter where you go, there's going to be a, a local brewery. And I just think that that's awesome and sort of fun to follow. Yeah, I do. And I, I think that I'm a little bit torn on the issue of uh, the independent breweries uh, either selling out, if you want to call it that, or getting bought up or accepting offers to be bought out. Because in one respect, most of the, the, the top reason most of us do anything uh, professionally is to make money. Yep. And so if, if, that is, if that is the goal for these breweries when they start, and that's where they get. I can get. I can understand why their fans and their beer drinkers can be disappointed, but that's just the symbol that they've made it. Now, I, I do think that they fare better when they stay a little bit smaller. I think yeah. that there's a little bit more care and concern um, about the product, about the beers, and I think that we we can. I don't want to say we can all agree and speak for every everybody because we're, we're not all the same as as far as beer drinkers are concerned. But I think. Most people can appreciate a good, small, independent brew. Uh, at, this, at the same time, I, I do think it's great when um, a company that's a little bit smaller, maybe can't handle that kind of distribution, is able to reach a point where more people across the country get to taste their beer. I mean, yeah. I, I was just thinking specifically about um, my honeymoon in New Orleans, and we went to just a, an incredible brewery down there called Urban South that we really, really enjoyed a number of their beers. And there were a lot of their beers um, on tap uh, all around the city and in other states in the South is my my understanding. But their distribution just 
just is not they're not big enough their operation isn't big enough to make it over here and it made me think man I, I wish i could get their beer more easily but at the same time maybe it makes you appreciate it a little bit more as well like with a pliny the elder um, or, or with something of that variety as well and i'm not saying this was as special as that but i do think it's an interesting discussion as far as um, what really is best for all parties? Because I do think there's something really nice about the uh, the small independent business, but I also do, don't want to tell anybody it's not their right to go get you know go get paid. Totally, and I think like so many other topics, we 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 see eye to eye on this. You know, I will say, you know, back before I was mentioning it, you know, back before Ballast Point sold out to, I think they sold to Constellation Brands which is, like I said before, basically Corona and Tecate, I think. Um, you know, I thought that that Grapefruit Sculpin was, was sort of was the very first of the sort of fruity, citrusy beers to really go big. I think it was like four summers ago, maybe five, that they mm -hmm. really burst onto the scene. And I said at that time, I thought that was maybe uh, the best beer I had ever had. It was great. I mean, it really tasted like there was real grapefruit juice in there, and I just thought it was fantastic. Now that they sort of, as you know, for lack of a better term, sold out, I don't think that that grapefruit sculpin is as good. I know that they're not using real grapefruit anymore. It just isn't as good as it used to be. I, I mean, to me, and I know a lot of others agree, it's still really popular, but I definitely think it lost something. But uh, the owner's got a billion dollars. So, I mean, I don't, I don't begrudge them in any way, shape, or form. Just as a consumer, I don't think their beer is as good now as I did when they were small. And, and so I don't buy it as much as I did. I'm going to go out and, and try to find new stuff or, or you know, uh, you know or, or stay true to some of the more independent, bigger ones. Like I really like Racer 5. Uh, they're up in Sonoma as well. They've stayed independent. So, you know, all things being equal... I'm going to go with a Racer 5 over a Sculpin now just because, you know, I think it's a little better and I think there's something to be said for sort of, you know, helping the little guy out uh, over helping Constellation brands out. That That's just kind of, that's the type of guy that I am, I guess. So, um, I don't know. But I just think, again, it's just more than anything, it's just an interesting sort of industry and hobby to follow and you know you get to drink some good beers out of it and catch a little buzz from time to time so that ain't bad either <laughs> <laughs> so uh that's my interest in the week what's your wild card uh so i get you inspired me with the uh, the outside lands talk uh i guess my wild card would be uh what was the what was the best act you saw this time around and what would you say is the best act you've seen in your 10 or 11 uh, outside land uh, appearances? Great question. Um, this is a good one. So this this year, it's an easy answer. Uh, I got I saw Paul Simon was the headliner nice. on Sunday. He was far and away the best, uh, best I saw. I, I thought he was really good. He wasn't, you know, he's not young anymore. Um, and and you, there is a little bit of that, but I thought he put on a really good, Really good performance. I wouldn't say it was great, but it was really good. The highlight was he brought Bob Weir from the Grateful Dead out for a special guest appearance, um, and they sung The Boxer, you know, the old Simon and Garfunkel song, mm -hmm. The Boxer together. That was incredible. Uh, so he was far and away the best act that I saw. You know, for me, 
the the overall lineup has deteriorated big time over the last few years. And I, I feel that, like do you feel like that's a product of there just being a higher volume of festivals, so the artists are more choosy. I, I feel like when it first started, you know, yes, there was Bonnaroo and there was Lollapalooza, but I didn't feel like there was a different festival every weekend, and now it feels like there is. Yeah. Um, so this is a great topic of discussion too. Um, I have a number of thoughts on this. I think it's a combination of things. I think that the music industry changed very fast um, before our eyes. And I think, you know, the whole, uh, the internet is the big reason for that. But then specifically the streaming services are the big thing that changed it. Specifically Spotify, uh, specifically iTunes and then Spotify, you know, people don't buy albums anymore. They buy songs and that mm-hmm. lends itself, I think, to a more poppy dominant music industry. I also think that bands, it's easier to find bands than there ever were before, but I think that the overall sort of quality has gone down. And I think that, you know, just for my taste, I'm a rock and roll fan. I think the majority of people aged, you know, what do you say, 18 to 30 aren't nearly as into rock and roll as the last two generations. They're much more into electronic music and and hip hop than, than generations before and so I think that those two genres um, and, and country too I think you know pop country is the third one there they sort of dominate yep. the scene I think you are on to something that there's just uh, the, the, the festival there, there's, there were too many festivals and now you're starting to see a bunch of them you know either change or shut down completely and then the other thing I think is that uh, a lot of the big headliners you know when Outside Land started the first few headliners were uh, just off the top of my head, the first year it was Tom Petty, Tom Petty, Radiohead, and Jack Johnson. Um, Tom Pretty Petty good. is now dead. Radiohead doesn't tour that much anymore, um, and Jack Johnson just isn't really popular anymore. And he probably made so much money he doesn't need to do much anymore. <laughs> you know, and then you know on down the line, whether it's uh, you know Elton John or Neil Young or Bruce Springsteen or Prince, or David Bowie, I mean, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, a lot of these guys are either have now passed away, or they're retiring from touring, or they're just set financially and don't really feel the need creatively or financially to go out and do these shows anymore. And that kind of goes on down the line. I mean, I remember uh, I saw LCD Sound System headline three years ago. You know, they've made plenty of money now, and they're not going to go out and do another festival circuit or tour until they make another album. So, you know, they played three years ago. They haven't made a new album since, so who knows when they're going to be at Back Out. But, you know, so for me, I just think that that all contributes to uh, a lineup that, for me, isn't nearly as interesting as it once was. And I think that, that, again, that's just a combination of the industry, um and just sort of the music scene with the age of guys and then also my age you know i'm just not as into the music scene as i once was with two kids and 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 all of that and and you know tastes have changed for the demographic that they're trying to attract to that festival which is really probably 18 to 30 is their or maybe even 35 is their target demo so i i think all of that plays a factor um does does that make sense do you do you agree with most absolutely No, I, I think you're. I think you hit a lot of different things that that adds up, and I do think that the 
the the one that maybe people don't appreciate enough is the is the way that music's consumed now and the way that they aren't bought in albums but that people pick individual songs for individual playlists that have a certain kind of vibe i think changes the way people have listened to music in general i think that i think that's a really astute observation and i, I agree with that one in addition to a number of the other things yeah i mean just just to further it you take uh the friday night headliner was 21 pilot saturday night was childish gambino um so, you know, neither of those artists have been around that long. They each probably have, what, two, maybe three albums out. I mean, ten years ago, you couldn't have headlined a festival with two albums out. It just, people weren't going to pay for that. You know, that, a, a band that had only had two albums out was going to be playing, you know, probably three slots before the headliner. I mean, you go back and look at these lineups that they used to have, it's incredible. You know, if they put that lineup out, and I think that if they put out the lineup this year that they put out 10 years ago, I actually think that lineup would do very, very well at the box office. But just those bands are either dead or not touring anymore for the most part, or they're no longer, that type of music just isn't as popular. So I think that those are sort of the three main factors. Now, uh, as far as the best performance I've ever seen there, I mean, so as I said before, this was my 12th year. The first 10 years I went to all three days every year, but one. So I saw pretty much all of it. Um, and I saw some really good performances as far as the best one. Or you're just a favorite. uh, Yeah. It's really hard to say. The, the the first time Metallica played, that might have been it for mm. me. They've played twice. I saw them both. But the first time Metallica played, I just thought it was on another level. It was fabulous. You know, uh, they're from here. It was just, mm-hmm. you could tell they were really, really psyched to be playing in a crowd that big in their hometown. I thought the first year that Tom Petty played was really, really special. And the first year that Radiohead played uh, was really, really special. Both Petty and Radiohead, I think, played twice. Radiohead definitely did. I think Petty did. I'm not, I'm not sure on that. And then I mentioned I, LCD sound system there was amazing. And the, and the time I saw Fish play there uh, was really, really amazing. As was, and I'm just going off here, but these were all, like, really good performances. Uh, Nine Inch Nails uh, at mm. Outside Land. Yeah, I heard that one was good. Was really and I, so good. I've only been I've only been a couple years, and there, and each time it was just for single days. But I, I also saw a couple good acts, uh, not a couple. I mean, I saw many good acts. But yeah. over the, I guess I think I've been four different times, um, or four for four different lineups, I guess if you will. But um, I saw Jack White, who was really good. I mean, if you were there for these, you may have seen him as well. But I yeah. thought that Jack White was really good live. Um, Seeing Red Hot Chili Peppers live, I'd never seen them before. I was there for both brought, of those. It was, it, was, it was nostalgic. It kind of brought me back to my childhood yep. a little bit. And then I think it was another year. Um, but uh, I saw Stevie Wonder, and that was just one of those guys who you don't know how much longer he's going to be doing it. And it's not so much that his – I thought his his show was like was, – was that – show-stopping, but to hear his music live and in person when that's probably not going to be available much longer felt special. I was there for all of those that you mentioned, and they were all really good. The best was Stevie. He was great. And then that reminded me of another guy that's sort of in the same legendary category, a guy that I would never have gone to see just on his own, but I thought Lionel Richie was really good. Mm. I had a lot of fun uh, seeing him 
on that big stage. And you know, they just made the whole thing better. The video screens are better. The lights are better. You know, everything. They've just really dialed it in. It's still a lot of fun to go to. I just don't care for the bands now as much as I once did. But I had a blast on Sunday. Just a, a really good time. And, and the festival is better than it's ever been really, but, you know, you need clear bags and go through a metal detector, and there's dudes walking around with machine guns all over the place, and that's pretty unsettling uh, when you're out there just trying to have a really good time. It's just, not to go back to my bad of the week, but that, it, it, it was a weird vibe with all of the security measures. It was just, it was very, very noticeable, and I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but, my wild card. So we were talking about the beer thing pretty pretty uh, recently, and I just want to go out and ask you, like, what are your top one or two beers right now? Like, if you had to, if you, if I said I'm coming over this weekend, I want you to get the best beer you can get. What would you get? Ooh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, it's a, it's made a little bit tougher by the fact that uh, I had been for the last, I guess four or five months, mostly been uh, sticking to the keto diet, which doesn't approve of much beer. That doesn't mean that there haven't been uh, a few cheat days um, here and there. I'm trying to think of, uh, of what would be really high on my list right now. Um, man, I have had a lot of good ones recently, and I had a lot of good ones at, uh, at that Portland Brew Fest, that, yep. uh, or that Oregon Brewers Fest that I mentioned a couple, a couple weeks ago. But I think, uh, if I remember, yeah, there was there was a a a fruity pebbles milkshake uh, IPA. Yeah, that's right. But um, no, so I guess a couple staples that that I really like up here um, that are are specifically local to Portland, and you may be able to get down there. Is um, I really like uh, there's a brewery up here called Ecliptic, and they have an IPA called Starburst. That is uh, their Starburst IPA. Doesn't taste like the candy Starburst. It's more of a, a galactic term, and uh, gotcha. it's just. But it is. It, it, it's it's citrusy. It's light. It's a little bit hazy, um, but not like too unfiltered. If, if if you catch my drift on it, it's it's just it's it's really nicely balanced. Um, there's another one. The um, Ninkasi Juicy IPA. I mean, I'm I know there are a lot of Ninkasi. places. So I know a lot of Tricera Hops has been very popular of theirs for a while, but I think that uh, the Juicy IPA, frankly, a lot of Juicy IPAs um, are things I've been a fan of. Uh, recently, there's um, there's actually a, a now a little tap house right around the corner from where I live that is that is walkable for me. It's a good thing I'm dieting because I probably walk down there a lot more frequently. They've got 25 beer taps and another 10 cider taps. Wow. Um, and, uh, and they've really got a lot of good stuff. They had something um, – I'm, now I'm going to try to remember the exact name of it. I'm sure I could, I could look it up. But they had, the week it was released by Lagunitas – a brand new Lagunitas IPA mm. um, that I, I think was called the Phaser, maybe. But um, that was really good, and I hadn't had anything new from Lagunitas in a while, and I liked that a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess if I were going to give three that would be kind of go-tos, um, they're a little bit, uh, I don't want to say run-of-the-mill, but I don't know if they're super sexy or exciting, but that, that's about what I got right now. What about you? Yeah, I mean, those are all good ones. I, I am a fan of the quote-unquote juicy IPA as well, and also the hazy IPA mm-hmm. movement, which is really a New England thing that mm-hmm. took a while to get to the West Coast, but it's here now 
in mass. So on that note, I actually think Sierra Nevada's high, hazy IPA. The, yeah, the hazy little thing. That is a good it's one. It's really good. And mm-hmm. and they, they're distributing it everywhere. In fact, they had it at Outside Lands, and I had a few of them. And I, I think that that's as good as any this summer. It's really, really, really solid. It's really good. Um, and then, of course, you know, we mentioned before, I think, for my money, the Pliny the Elder is pretty hard to beat. And I also think that the Blind Pig is pretty good. We brought a few of those home and actually mm-hmm. had one uh, while I was cooking dinner tonight. So uh, I really like those two. And then I'm a, I am mentioned it before. I'm a, ever since I moved to California, I discovered Racer 5, which is an IPA made up in Sonoma, Healdsburg to be exact. And I, I like that. I will still buy... Uh, a fair amount of Racer 5. I, I would say it's among my top two or three just regular IPAs these days. Yeah. Um, and that's Absolutely. And you know what? And like, they're, they're, I have plenty of Bay Area favorites like that. Pliny the Elder, Racer 5, definitely two at the very, very top of my list. And the other one I like is uh, that's now been around for a little while, but I, but is always good is, I think, the Deschutes Fresh Squeezed IPA. Agree. I like that one a lot, too, and that's from Oregon, I think, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yep, and then, yep, that's right. You know, I will say just a shout-out. When I was in Richmond, Virginia over the summer, Richmond, Virginia, uh, strangely, has tons of breweries. In fact, I think they're, you know, it changes all the time, but they're in the top two or three, like, most breweries per capita of anywhere in America, and they have one that has really become the, the, the top one in Richmond, and it's called The Veil, and they're actually building one in D.C. now, too. They have some unbelievable beers, and they're one of these places that just changes and tries new things all the time and comes out with, like, weird stuff, and, and they had this, like, uh, like cherry red beer that tasted unlike any beer I've ever had. It really didn't even taste like a beer. It was incredible. And and I couldn't even tell you what the name was, but I, I just really thought that that brewery and that beer in particular was about as good and creative as any that I had ever been to. And so it seems like they're becoming one of the real big ones now on the East Coast. And it, excuse me, it'll be interesting to see if they stay the independent route going back to an earlier conversation, but the veil in Richmond, Virginia, keep your eye out for that one. And I, you know, they are canning. I don't think it's gotten to the West coast, but you know, it probably never will. But if you're on the East coast, look out for the veil. It's pretty good. Nice. I will. All right. That does it. So what's our schedule here now? We're going to, we're going to take another week off and reconvene. One more week off and then we'll be back in full swing as we preview the, start of the college football season. Right, so we will have that game between the Canes and Gators to talk about a little bit, but really we'll go Mm -hmm. in the book for the first time looking ahead to the first full weekend of college football over Labor Day, which can't get here a a moment too soon for me. As a little tease, I think a couple things. We'll probably give out a couple locks for the first week that we think. I think we will also probably at the outset pick our college football playoff teams. Yes, we and, will. Uh, and, and maybe a couple uh, bold predictions or something of that nature. Yeah, we'll, we'll predict and not hold each other to it and be dead wrong on everything. So uh, you, you can expect <laughs> plenty of that. But uh, appreciate everyone for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. And as we always say, good night, everybody. Sleep tight. Good night, y'all.